Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So I've been getting some really nice international emails from people recently. Finland, the UK, and Singapore, to name a few places. And I always love the feedback and, of course, the kind words. And if you haven't yet had the chance to throw a handful of stars my way on Apple Podcasts, I'd appreciate it so much if you could leave a rating, a review, or both. Okay, let's get to today's episode. So nice to have a fan favorite, author Kimberly Tilly, back once more. She's been on the show twice already. First time was episode 125, The Murder of Jenny Boshider, and also episode 180, about the murder of Ed Burdick. Her latest book is called Has It Come to This?, The Mysterious Unsolved Murder of Frank Richardson. Thank you for coming back. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be back. Yes. So you are becoming quite a prolific writer now. (laughs) I feel like I can write kind of slowly, but I I love to write. So so I guess, yes, that's good. (laughs) So this is your second murder mystery from the year 1900. What is it about that year, that, that era? that intrigues you so much? Oh my gosh. I love that era so much. I think it's just at the time that the whole world was shifting, you know, it's like the birth of the modern world. And you still had um, people that were, you know, with their horses and buggies, and they had this very agricultural kind of life. But you also had airplanes that were coming into the picture and, and cars and um, telegrams and all of these different things, these, these things that are sort of the forerunners to our modern world. And I don't think that there would ever be another time in history that was quite like it, where there's just the old world and the new world and they just collide. And it was also such a time of optimism and excitement and hope. It's just fascinating to me. 
So there is some extra atmosphere in your latest book. This is Savannah, Missouri during the Christmas season. It's kind of funny, the the atmosphere there. They lived in a very small town and they did have these Christmas festivities, but it's, it's kind of funny to think of. Um, they had a little opera house in the town and a few stores and things, but there, it seemed like there was a lot going on. You know, it was a very social place. And um, so there was a lot of excitement in the air. So where is Savannah exactly? It's in northwestern Missouri. And um, I would say it's maybe like an hour north of Kansas City. It was a small town, but a very well-to-do town, wasn't it? Yes, they had, uh, the people in the book definitely had money, but they also had a lot of friends there and they all had money. So they also had a, a telephone tower in the town and a few people actually had telephones installed in their homes and in their businesses. And it, they were those were luxuries at the time. So it was great for people to be able to try all these new communication things out. And yeah, I guess I guess you could say that they were definitely well-to-do. So the central characters in your book are Frank and Addie Richardson. They were, along with their family, recent transplants from Texas, right? Yes. So Addie was born and raised in Texas, and that's where she had met Frank Richardson. And Frank was originally from Virginia, and he had been a farmer there. And his brother, who is sort of this off off to the side kind of influence on Frank, you know, in, in television, he'd be off screen, but he, he just gave Frank a lot of opportunities and kind of guided him through through life. And he gave him an opportunity to manage a cattle ranch that he owned in Texas. And that's where he met Addie. And Addie, um, they were both from large families. And he was just really taken with her. She was about more than 10 years younger than him, I think. And just a very, very charming kind of person, very independent person. And he just liked her a lot right away. And they had a brief, brief courtship. And then they got married and had three sons while they were in Texas. And he was quite a big, boisterous character. And part of the reason she was attracted to him was that he could be a lot of fun, too. I think he was. You know, when he was behaving himself, he was a lot of fun. And he could. He was just one of those people that could make everything seem more fun, even just day-to-day stuff. And he could be very charming, but he definitely had some demons that you know, would overtake him at times and, and make all of that disappear. And he could also be really, really difficult to live with. The first years of their marriage, though, were, I think they were happy. They seemed to be very happy together. What did Frank do for a living in Savannah? In Savannah, he became a merchant. So I mentioned his brother, John, that had kind of guided him through life because he started off as a farmer. That's what their family did. And then he became a rancher because John sent him there. And then John was living, he was living in Missouri and he wanted Frank to come and live closer to where he was. And he said, you know, I could help you get into anything. He had made a lot of money and been very successful. And he sort of set Frank up. He decided he wanted to own his own store 
And he set him up and he introduced him to the right people and gave him a lot of advice. And he ended up becoming a merchant and had a partner there, uh, Fife. And so they opened the Fife Richardson Mercantile in Savannah. You you write, if, if I remember right, that his brother John had had gotten in on the ground floor of the company that would eventually become Nabisco, right? He did. And this was um, back when they were making, I think, saltines, crackers. They were, they were the originators of this. And it became, it, they just became a real hit. And they consolidated all these different bakeries and things. But John had tremendous luck in business. And I think in a lot of ways, he was just one of those people where the stars would line up for him. And he, he worked hard, but he was lucky as well. And Frank was the opposite. He often didn't work hard and things often didn't work out for him. So his brother was like a guardian angel a little bit, and he would rescue him frequently and keep an eye on him. And he worried about him too, because Frank was prone to really severe depression. So by 1900, they had assimilated well into the community They were well-liked in church and by the neighbors, for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. They had, Addie was very popular. She was, she was very unique, I think, for the area. She was very Texan. You know, she was independent. She was young. She had a lot of energy and people really liked her. And people liked Frank, too, when he was sober. And um, he had a couple of good friends. Normally, he didn't like other men. He was very jealous about his wife. But in Savannah, he made two good friends that were men, um, George Crowley and Charlie Stanton. And George and Charlie were brothers-in-law. So they were, you know, family. But they took George, or I'm sorry, they took Frank in and they were... They were friendly with him and he liked them and he trusted them. With most men, he he was always afraid that they would steal Addie away from him. And so with these two, he didn't worry about that. And he just they were just good friends of his. On the surface, the couple seemed well adjusted. No financial stress, really. They'd always be taken care of by Brother John. Um, a nice family, a nice home. Mm-hmm. No real reason for any marital strife, right, that anyone could see. You wouldn't think so. Um, And also, I think it's important to note, too, that Addie had money of her own. Um, Her father had done really well with ranching. So they have money from both areas. And you're right. Like, I think that most people, when they initially met them, just assumed that they were a very happy couple. And at times they were. But Frank's drinking I think became a lot worse after his father died and he, he was already sort of prone to severe depression, but he just sort of let himself go. And these episodes he would have would become more and more public and more embarrassing, I think for the family and for him, you know, when he would come out of these stupors that he would have, it would be, it was, it was embarrassing for him to recall what he had done. And I think a lot of times he was one of those people who was cursed with a, a really clear memory of what he had said and done when he was drinking. So while he's drinking, and even when he's not drinking, 
he focuses his anger, his jealousy, on one particular person, a man named Stuart Fife, who he believes is having an affair with his wife. Yes. And Stuart was his business partner's son. So there was no getting around seeing him because Thomas Fife, Frank's partner, you know, wanted his son to be involved with the store. It was for both of them. It was it was their main um, source of, of income. And he wanted his son to be involved. His son, Stuart, was he was younger than Addie. I, I want to say he was in his early 20s. But there was less difference between Stuart and Addie in terms of age than there was between Addie and Frank. And Frank was just really jealous of him. I think Stuart was, he was good looking. He was kind of suave. He also drank a lot. And he was, uh, I think he, he got in a lot of like little scrapes, nothing serious, but he, you know, he, would, he tended to get into like little, little jams here and there. Right. There was really no proof of anything going on between his wife and Stuart Fife, right? I don't think that there was. I think I think Addie felt more comfortable around men than women. That was just my impression. And it wasn't like she had a lot of men in her circle or that she would spend a lot of time even outside. And so when she would go in to help at the store, I think she enjoyed talking with Stuart and they got along and, you know, she was, she was very vivacious and energetic. And I think she just kind of liked bantering back and forth with people. I don't think there was anything there. I don't know that, but I don't think that there was, but I know that Frank definitely thought that there was and worried about it. But also he even thought like the family doctor was, you know, suspiciously interested in his wife. And I don't know, he just, he kind of was suspicious of almost every man. It seems sometimes, uh, doesn't it, that, that the men that seem most suspicious of their wives are the, are the ones having affairs themselves? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it certainly was the case for him. <laughs> yeah, nobody really had um, less less reason to be suspicious of other people than Frank did, you know, because Frank was having an affair with a teenager. She was a 17-year-old girl named Goldie Whitehead, and... She had been introduced to him by this shadowy kind of character, Frank Davis. And Goldie was, she lived on a farm about 30 miles from Savannah. Mm -hmm. And she, I think she was just kind of a, a simple person, but she saw in Frank an opportunity because Frank had a lot of money, more money than she even realized at first. And when he finally did break it off with her, I'm not sure how long their affair lasted, but at least several months. Um, when he did break it off, Goldie started to blackmail him. And so did this other guy, Frank Davis. So they were both coming to him for money for their silence about this affair. And he was in a real mess with it because he didn't want his wife to know. And he was genuinely afraid that they would either do something like to you know, spread the story around or else that they would physically harm him. And every time he'd give them money to shut them up, that would embolden them to ask for even more. Yes. 
So they, they realized, you know, oh, this guy really doesn't want this story out. And so he would do some kind of extreme things. They had a, um, a telephone in the store, which was, it was still a luxury and, and many businesses didn't have one yet, but they had one at the store. And so there was this telephone tower that they could go to. And, um, you know, he went there and said, I don't want any more calls from Goldie put through to the store. So at one point after he had done that, she actually showed up in Savannah, which is quite a trip for her. But she came there and immediately went to Charlie Stanton, uh, Frank's friend, and said, I want some money. And Charlie tried to smooth things over. He said, okay, go back to your hotel. I'll talk to Frank. And he went to talk to Frank. And Frank was just devastated because he had just given a lot of money to Frank Davis, Goldie's connection. And so, you know, he's ending up paying out a lot of money. And because of his drinking, he wasn't really as successful as he probably could have been at work. And even to the point of like having to have people walk him home. So it wasn't like he was a a stellar businessman at the time, but he did have these major extra expenses that he had to pay then through the blackmail. According to, to Charlie, Goldie told him that if she didn't get the money she deserved, she would do something drastic. Yeah. Violent. Yeah. She was very specific too. She said, I wish if I would have known, you know, he wasn't going to give me money, I would have shown up at his house with a revolver and shot him. And Charlie was kind of cute. He said, if you go to his house, you better take two revolvers because his wife is from Texas. And (laughs) she was like, it's true, but it was also, I think he was trying to shield Frank as much as possible, but there wasn't a lot of there was no real discouraging her. And he did end up giving her money that time because when she showed up in town, it just made Frank frantic. You know, he, because she was what, like across the square from his store, maybe four blocks from his house. She was very close by. So it was, it was something where it was untenable for him. So how did Addie learn about her husband's affair with Goldie Whitehead? And what was her reaction? It's funny because Frank had done so much to try to conceal this affair that he was having from her. But after she threatened to kill him when she was talking to Charlie, he got really alarmed. And so he was drinking as usual. And when he got home, he just blurted out the whole thing to his wife and said, you know, like, oh, I've been having this affair with her and now she's threatening to kill me. And he was really preoccupied with the threat to his safety and he really believed Goldie would do it and and seemed pretty firm in that conviction that it was like if something happened it was going to be her but for Addie listening to this I think she was I would describe it as like cold fury maybe she was really angry but it wasn't like she was going to shout at him or have a meltdown she just very coldly told him to take care of it and explained to him that she was taking their children and going to Texas. And it wasn't necessarily saying I'm leaving you forever or we're getting divorced, but she just said that she was leaving. She didn't really give a return date or anything. And Frank took that opportunity to try and sober himself up. I think that's about the time that Frank hit the bottom. You know, he, he really bottomed out and he, 
was unhealthy by then. And he, uh, his business wasn't doing well. He was being blackmailed. Now his wife and children have left. And it was probably the wake up call that he needed. And he decided that he was going to go to this. It was like an early rehab and it was called the Keeley cure. And they actually had this gold chloride type of um, elixir that they would give people and, and they would also have an opportunity to sober up at a facility. And so he went there and he wrote to his wife while he was there and just, it's such a kind of a beautiful letter. It was sad, but he just said, you know, he, he took the blame for everything negative that had happened in their marriage and everything bad that was currently the situation. And pleaded with her to come home and give him another chance and, um, you know, just to give him one more chance to try to make things good and, and explain how much he loved her and the children. And she did. She came back. So things seemed okay, again, at least on the surface. They, they were getting along once more. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I'm not even sure if it was on the surface or if it was like genuinely they were happy together because he came back and um, they both came back to Savannah in mid-December and the, the murder took place on December 24th. And so they weren't together very long before, before this happened, but it did seem like he was determined to make things go better. And he had sworn off drinking and he was, you know, just being very industrious at the store and being kinder to his wife and not embarrassing her or anything like that anymore. So Christmas Eve day, 1900, if you don't mind, would you walk us through that day up to the demise of Frank Richardson? Okay. Well, during the day they worked, or, or Frank worked, and they had a big dinner together because that evening they had uh, just a lot of different plans happening. The children um, were going to be in this Christmas pageant, and I think they had small little parts, but they were going to do that. And then um, everybody was going to meet at the store because Frank was going to work. And um, they were going to meet at the store after this this Christmas pageant, and they were all going to go to the Crowley Opera House and watch a performance there and then come home for the night, and then the next day was Christmas. So they were very excited about that and had some company for dinner. And then after dinner, the children left, and then the two girls that worked for the Richardsons left too. So they were all going to church, and these girls' names were Bessie and Minnie, and they're kind of like cooks and, you know, maids, things like that. And Addie stayed home, but Frank left too. So everybody was gone. Addie was home by herself. And the book kind of follows what Addie was doing. So she decorated her Christmas tree a little bit. And not that long after Frank left, she called the store. I don't even think he had had time to get to the store yet, but she went next door to the neighbors and asked to use the phone and called the store and said, you know, could you leave Frank a message to pick up these presents for the boys at, at, at the hardware store? And then she came home. She was going to go to church. She left for church. And I guess she had gotten maybe two blocks away and she realized she had forgotten her brooch. 
And then she decided to go back home because she was afraid somebody would steal it. And she went home, she got the brooch, and then she said, oh, it's too late to go to the pageant now, I think. So she went back to her neighbor's home again to use their phone. This was around 8 p.m. And the neighbor was kind of accustomed to Addie coming over. She would come over several times a day and use the phone. And so she was just sort of in the other room and overheard Addie say, all right, well, I didn't go to church because of, you know, I forgot the brooch or whatnot. And um, I'll come and meet you and the boys and um, I'll be there in a little bit and we'll all go to the Crowley Opera House. So the neighbor overhears this and um, she goes back home then. And for whatever reason, she just didn't get she said she was only going to stay home like maybe 10, 15 minutes, something like that. And so she left her coat and her hat on. And then she said she started decorating the tree and then she got kind of tired and went to just sit down in her room to rest. But all of this time passed. And so around 8.45, the boys came into Frank's store and they were really excited and they're talking about the pageant and everything. And he said, well, where's your mom? And they said, well, she didn't go to church. And his demeanor immediately changed that he was very upset. And so he kind of pulled his middle son off to the side and was interrogating about about this. And he, he started to say, well, go home and see if your mom is there. But it was, I mean, this little boy, he was, I don't know, maybe like nine or 10 or so, or maybe he was 11 and he was, he was cold and he didn't want to go. And so he just kind of begged off and his dad was like, all right, I'll go. Never mind, I'll go myself. And so he goes home and that's, that's when this murder was committed at that time when he went back home to check for his wife. We will be back momentarily after some brief messages. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, 
the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. We have returned. So the layout of this house, it's a little odd as far as the location of the Richardson's bedroom went. Yes. So it's a five-bedroom house. It's a large house, and all five bedrooms are upstairs. Each of the three boys had a bedroom, and the girls who worked for them shared a room. And then there was another bedroom. But Addie and Frank had a room downstairs. They basically had two large living areas, and one of them they converted into a large bedroom. And so Addie was sitting on the sofa in this bedroom and kind of waiting, and she had the light turned down very low. She said this was just a habit of hers. And that night, so it was maybe, it was about 8.52, 8.53 that night, and she heard uh, the sound of a carriage or maybe like a horse and buggy or something, and she heard it coming, and she heard two people coming up the walk. And she said immediately she thought it was George Crowley and Frank, and they had come to get her and drive her to the to the Crowley Opera House. Just a little strange, though, because she was supposed to meet them at the store. She wasn't they weren't going to come and pick her up. But that's what she thought was happening. And she heard the door open and Frank came in and it shut again. And then she decided at that point that she wanted to scare him. So she her lamp was very dimly lit, but she turned it out. I don't think she meant to turn it all the way out, but it went all the way out. And so she's sitting in the dark and she kind of wants to leap out and scare him. And she says she was kind of poised to do this. And all of a sudden she hears Frank's voice and he sounds furious. And he says, has it come to this? And right afterwards, there was a gunshot and she hears a body hit the floor and she runs to the door of the bedroom, you know, um, that leads right out into the front hall. And Frank is standing right there or had been standing there. And now he was on the floor and she doesn't know what happened at first, but she said her first thought was that he was either pretending to have committed suicide or that he had committed suicide. And she pulls him partway into the room until just his head is resting on, on like the door sill. Um, so just that part of him is in the front hall. And she pulls him into the room and she's trying to find out what's wrong. And she says, are you sick? And he's not responding. And she finally realizes he must be dead. And she ran out of her house and goes back to her neighbor's house and starts pounding on the door. And when the doctor's wife comes to the door, she says, Frank is dead. And Mrs. Kara's, no, he can't be dead. You know, she he's sick. Maybe he fell, maybe something. And Addie says, no, no, he's dead. And she's like, go home and stay with him. And I'll, I'll call somebody, I'll call some help. And so Addie goes home back, back to the house. And that was sort of the way that the, the story of the murder, the official story of the murder and how it happened. Do you find the way she reacted to this situation believable? I'm surprised she wasn't concerned at all about the possibility of a shooter maybe still lurking around inside the home? Yeah, that's a great point. 
she said she cried out for help and she heard something in the kitchen, like as if somebody had slammed the door behind them. But she didn't seem worried about that. And also, another thing I think is a little bit unusual is, you know, you think about if she's she's supposed to meet her husband and her sons at the store and she doesn't come and now she's whatever, like maybe... 20 minutes late, half an hour late. And then he comes looking for her. And I think like you would probably assume he was kind of worried or, or a little bit grumpy that she wasn't there. So I don't know if I, I think it's a little strange that she decided that she was going to try to scare him and like leap out of the darkness at him. Like that doesn't seem like that would be calculated to like make the situation better. I think that that would, would probably aggravate things a little bit. So even that part is strange. And um, there was also a neighbor outside who heard the gunshot and he looked around for a while and waited because that was very unusual in their neighborhood. And when nothing happened, after a few minutes, he went into his own house. And so just the story doesn't exactly line up, you know, because from Addie's telling of it, the gun went off, she pulled Frank into the room and then she ran outside screaming. Nobody heard her screaming. And the neighbor didn't see her. He was looking in that direction because he knew where the gunshot had come from the general area. So it, there are a few things that don't line up. And there was also no horse and buggy that Addie had talked about. Yeah. And she thought that her husband was returning home with a friend, George Crowley. Yeah. <laughs> it seems even stranger that she'd jump out and scare him, her husband, with a guest next day. Yeah, right? Like, that seems very strange to me. <laughs> yeah. So she goes over to Mrs. Carr's home, as you've said. And in the meantime, people off the street just start wandering into the house to look at the body. Yeah. And it was, it's very strange because Mrs. Carr's a, a doctor's wife. And so you would think like her first instinct would be to get medical help because she knows Frank is at least injured. Addie says he's dead, but Mrs. Care doesn't believe it. So you'd think that would be her first thought, but it wasn't. Her husband was away that night and her first call was to the Fife Richardson Mercantile to just let them know something was wrong with Frank. And um, his boys were still there. And so everybody was kind of trying to pretend everything was normal, but a couple of the clerks disappeared and went to the house. And then the doctor's wife went out into the street and was just grabbing random neighbors and saying, hey, you should, you need to go help Mrs. Richardson. There's something wrong with Mr. Richardson. And then she went over. So very unlike what would happen today if somebody got shot at, at someone's house, right? Like certainly nobody, there weren't, there wasn't 911 to call. And they didn't have like a police department that was going to come in and tape off the area or anything like that. It was more, um, it was more like if somebody needed, like if Frank had fallen, you know, that would have been great because there would have been a bunch of men there to like pick him up and, you know, put him like on his bed or, or in a chair or something, but that wasn't the case. And even so there was no real alteration in the plan about like how they were helping the Richardsons at this point, it was just, there was a huge crowd of people there. And the more people that came, the more people were attracted. And so there were at least a couple of dozen, maybe three dozen people that were there at one point, just kind of looking around like, well, what happened? And um, 
Addie was sitting on the sofa the whole time and she told them all the same story about, you know, she was sitting in the dark and Frank came in and then he was very angry and she heard the gunshot and that was all she knew. So that was the story. And a lot of people heard it that night. There there were some people who initially believed um, immediately after he died that he had committed suicide, right? I think that was what a lot of people thought just for a little bit until finally a doctor was reached. And as soon as the doctor came over, it it was immediately clear from what he was saying that there was no way Frank could have, it, it wasn't even physically possible for him to kill himself this way because the, um, he was shot and he shot from behind and the bullet entered his skull from like, like the base of his skull, but a little to the right. And then it went upwards at a really sharp angle. And so it lodged somewhere like around, you know, over his left eye. So nobody could shoot themselves from behind that way. And there was just no way for that to to occur. So they knew right away that he had been murdered. But then the question was like, well, who murdered him? You know, there was, there was nobody in the house except for his wife and she didn't see anybody. So who could have done it? And that, that became the, the big question right away from that night on. And again, she reported that she had heard him say mysteriously, has it come to this? Um, assuming he was talking to this person face-to-face, for him to get shot from behind, right? that's suspicious as well. See, I think that's suspicious too. But it's very strange to me because in the papers and um, when when people would talk about it, like the official records and everything, no one suspected a conspiracy. But it seemed to me that if he had encountered somebody in his home that he knew and he said, has it come to this? He would be looking at and talking to that person. So how was he shot from behind? And that doesn't make sense if if there's just the one person there in front of them, like, how could that even happen? So that, that did become the question though. And it's like, well, who would he say that to? Who would, who would he, you wouldn't say that to just a, uh, an intruder, like somebody that like, if you found a burglar in your home, you wouldn't say, has it come to this? You know, you, it would be more like, who are you? What are you doing here? And he didn't say anything like that. So clearly he knew this person and that added a lot of speculation, but then Addie changed her story and everything started to kind of spiral after that. So she said, no, I was out of my, I was, I was not talking rationally. I was, I was shocked. That's not what really happened. Everything was true up until the point that she was sitting there, but she said that Frank came in and he said, come to like, come outside and come to the opera house or, but he, she just said, all he said was come to, and he didn't sound angry at all. So this totally changes the, the landscape of the murder and, and how that could have happened. But Addie said right away, it must be Goldie Whitehead. And, and she was one of the main suspects. But I think just Addie changing her story like that, especially after she told so many people, the first story was, was definitely suspicious for a lot of people. Right, yeah. So the sheriff and the coroner eventually arrive. Did the sheriff find any important evidence at the scene of the crime? 
would say the sheriff didn't, but the, it was more like the neighbors and the employees from the mercantile. They did almost all the investigation, um, but they looked around and they were curious to see around the outside of the house. It's very difficult because there were so many people that came over. Like it would destroy a crime scene just having so many people there. But they did look around and there was a light dusting of snow. And they said that they saw some tracks around the windows, especially around the windows where, of the room that they used as a bedroom. And um, they saw a lot of tracks back to town, but, but the tracks back to town meant almost nothing because, you know, there were so many people coming over there that night and um, a lot of them came from town. So that wasn't, that wasn't particularly convincing to anybody. Um, they did find a rifle in the house, but it belonged to the boys and it, it hadn't been fired and Frank wasn't killed with a rifle shot. So there wasn't anything there. They didn't find a gun. They looked everywhere for the gun. Um, the thing that they found that was suspicious was that they found Frank's hat and the cigar he was smoking in the bedroom. And it didn't make sense because if he fell in the hallway, it should have fallen maybe in the hallway or like maybe on the, maybe on the door cell at the most, but it was in the bedroom. So it suggested that he had been in the bedroom, but a lot of people could kind of explain that away and say, well, maybe it just kind of got kicked there as more and more people came in. Right. And then another odd thing that she said she did, she, she said she dragged him a short distance after she found him. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know why she did this? She said she thought he was hurt and then she thought maybe he was sick. But then in court, she said that she thought that he had tried to kill himself. So it was, it's unclear what she was thinking, but she said she dragged him into the room, like partway into the room. And that even was, it was a little bit suspicious. She was a very petite woman and Frank was a big guy. So for her to drag him would take a tremendous amount of strength. But then at the same time, people, when they have a lot of adrenaline pumping, they can do things like that. And um, they have like a lot more strength than you would think if there's an emergency, something that's life or death. So it's possible that she could have done that, but it doesn't really explain how his cigar and hat would have gotten into their bedroom. Well, well, she was from Texas though, right? Uh, if anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe she did, maybe she had like her, her power there, but she, but she did manage to do it or, you know, his body was, was found there when, when other people started to come in and check and um, that's true. So a coroner's inquiry began almost immediately. And interestingly, Addie had legal representation from the very beginning. Yeah, because for a coroner's inquest, I mean, they're just, they're trying to figure out if anything illegal happened. So obviously they're going to come back with a verdict like, yes, he was murdered. But why would she need attorneys there? And this was something that um, Frank's brother, John, the one that watched over him so much, he had arranged that and said that she needed the attorneys there. And they were they were in the courtroom and they just kind of found out about the story because, you know, it was just like that. She was required to testify on Christmas Day. Um, they actually came to their house, I think, on Christmas Day. And then the following day, they were in the courthouse in Savannah. But this lasted uh, a few days with the inquest. 
What about Stuart Fife and Goldie Whitehead? Did they have alibis? They, Stuart did, sort of. Um, Stuart said that he got kind of drunk at seven o'clock after he left work. And from the way he explained it, he just kind of went from one place to another and just kept drinking. And he didn't really have a clear idea of where he had been, but he knew he hadn't left the square and they had a little club, like a gentleman club, and he was there for a while sleeping. So that was his alibi. But then it got called into question because people were saying, well, if you were there, how come other people who showed up there don't remember seeing you? There weren't that many people there. It's just a little weird. And so right away, there was a lot of doubt cast on his alibi. With Goldie, it was different. And Addie, actually, her, you know, one of the first things was like, has that woman done this to my husband? Has she killed him? And Goldie did say she was going to go to his house and shoot him. So it's a normal question. And she knew that Charlie Stanton had been this go-between with Frank and Goldie. So she went to him, she called him and said, you know, had him come to the house the night of the murder and pleaded with him. Can you call Goldie and see if she's at home? Because she lived far enough away where, you know, it would take her a few hours to get home, I think. And, you know, Addie knew that if she had committed the murder, she couldn't possibly be home. So she just wanted Charlie to call and see if Goldie was there. And Charlie really didn't want to do it. And so he tried to push it off. And George Crowley was there. He's like, just do it, you know, like. She wants you to do it. Just do it. It'll ease her mind. So Charlie agrees, but then he didn't do it. So there was no real proof that people knew about that Goldie had been at home. Later on, when she was questioned, she said that she had been. She was asleep by eight o'clock and that she had been nowhere near it. She she had not even realized that, that this had happened until later. And she was very sad to hear about Frank's death. But um, the police investigated and they never said why, but they almost immediately cleared her and said, no, it couldn't possibly have been her. And they had their reasons for thinking so, but they wouldn't share them. So people in the town continued to be pretty suspicious about Goldie and about Stewart. So one of the witnesses called in the inquiry was a servant living with the Richardsons, a woman named Bessie Phyllis. And she was able to shed some light on the true nature of the relationship between Frank and Addie. She definitely shed some light. Uh, she would talk about, she told some very scandalous stories about Addie specifically. And she talked about how men would come to visit Addie when Frank wasn't home, including George Crowley and Charlie Stanton and some other men. And she said that they would go into her bedroom and lock the door. And sometimes they would go in there and turn out the lights and lock the door. So this was very scandalous. I mean, it would even be scandalous now, but in 1900 for, for a married woman to, or any woman, I guess, to go into her bedroom with a man and lock the door and everything. And it, it, it basically destroyed Addie's reputation because she swore to all this stuff and um, her sister's boyfriend and her boyfriend would also come on the stand and swear to the same thing and say that, yeah, Mrs. Richardson had these other men that would come over and this happened more than once. This was a regular occurrence. So it almost made it sound like, wow, you could kind of see why Frank was so jealous, but Addie 
denied everything. She said, I didn't like none of that happened. That's not true at all. And Frank's main point of jealousy was Stuart Fife. So it, I don't know, like she, she really just destroyed her reputation. And that really casts a lot of suspicion onto Addie as the suspect. So then there were the three main suspects. It was Goldie, Stuart, and Addie. And the police were saying it's definitely not Goldie. We will return after this quick break. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Back once more. During the coroner's inquiry, they kept trying to get Addie to come in and testify, but she kept telling them she was sick and couldn't do it, right? Yeah, she said she was sick and she wouldn't come in. And they were 
postponing her testimony. But then the inquest started to stretch out and the judge finally got frustrated. So he said, okay, let's go to her house. You know, she lived four blocks away, but this is still pretty unorthodox. So they actually all crowded into her house. It was uh, the attorneys, the judge, the jury, um, some people from the newspaper and she's in her bedroom you know, sitting up in bed and her brother-in-law and her nephew and her sisters, like all these people are just crowded into this bedroom while she's talking about her side of the story and and what happened that night. And um, they take her testimony there and then they go back to the courtroom to, to discuss it. And unfortunately for her, they came back and they basically believed that she had been behind it. She was involved somehow. And um, they came back later that day with um, a warrant for her arrest. And while this was happening, a gun was suddenly found lying on a plank sidewalk about four blocks away from her home. It appeared to be the murder weapon, and it also appeared to have been planted there. Yeah. So that was one of the big questions. Like if Addie did it, where was the gun? You know, and that was, it was a big, it was sort of the answer to everything that she would give. It's like, well, if if I did it, where's the gun? You know, they were all over the house that night. She didn't have enough time to run four blocks, drop this gun, and then, you know, get home somehow. But um, they found the gun. They checked it. It was the same caliber, caliber bullet. It, I mean, they didn't have the forensics that they have today. So they basically just checked to see had it been fired and had it been fired recently, the gun was loaded and there was one shell that was gone. So one bullet was missing in the gun. And they determined that it must have been the gun that shot Frank. And like you said, they felt like where it was found was, I mean, it's its weird anyway to just like leave a loaded gun on the street, but um, they found this revolver and they felt like it had been planted there. But who had done away with it that night if it was the gun? And it probably was. But if it was the gun, like, who moved it over there? And when did they move it? They didn't think it could have been Addie because even that night, um, there were so many people there going over the house. But somebody was with her every moment. Even um, when she got undressed for the night, like, one of the neighbors was helping her. So it wasn't even like she could have hidden it on her person. Um, She definitely didn't have it. And so that was... The fact that the gun was found didn't shed a lot of light on who committed the murder. It was just that now they had the murder weapon. So establishing a timeline was important, of course. And it ultimately came down to about a five-minute window when everything went down. Frank was last seen by someone on a corner near their home at 8.51 p.m., Uh, As you said, he was in his house by 8.52 p.m. Yes. And Addie was at the neighbors reporting the crime at 8.57 p.m. Yes. So that it just, it left out the possibility that she could have possibly been the person who put the gun over there. So if she was involved, she would have had to have an accomplice. And if she wasn't involved, then whoever did it had left with the gun and then just disposed of it later. Right, right. Yeah. And the idea of her trying to to drag the body, um, you know, all of this over the course of five minutes. 
there was a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, there was. And I think that after Bessie testified and said all of those things about her, um, the other thing that happened during the testimony was that George testified and said that she was going to go um, when he had been at dinner with the Richardsons before the murder. Addie had told Frank in front of him very specifically that she was going to go to church with Miss Allison from down the street. And George had testified to that. So they brought up Miss Allison and she was like, I didn't, I saw Mrs. Richardson earlier at the store, but we had no plans. She didn't speak to me about that. So there was, there was all this question all of a sudden about like, well, is she being honest? And what are all these stories that Bessie is telling? And now we find out that she maybe lied to her husband about going to church. And then there started to be other stories. Like people just started to pile on like, oh, I saw her and I saw like a man walking into their house around eight o'clock. And it just very quickly snowballed to where there were a lot of stories all of a sudden, and none of them made Addie look very good. So a grand jury was convened in March to investigate the case, and it came back with the same basic conclusion that the coroner's inquest did, um, and Addie was indicted. She was indicted, and they almost had a second indictment. And when I was writing the book, um, I always try to check with experts, and I was, I was talking to somebody who's a public defender, and she told me that that's so unorthodox for the the DA to say, oh, we almost had a second indictment, but it was just, you know, like one or two votes short. They didn't say who it was, but they said that they almost had a second indictment. And, and the DA seemed pretty disappointed about that and thought that there had been somebody else involved. But he thought that Addie was, or he said he thought Addie was definitely guilty. And so she was going to be tried for this. But interestingly, because her brother-in-law had scheduled or had had uh, hired such excellent uh, attorneys for her, she um, never spent a minute in jail. She was never in jail even for a single second. He did pay a large bond for her as well, but they didn't think that she would flee because she had her home there and her sons and she had never been in any trouble. So she's she's basically been accused, but she's... She's out on bond and she's just sort of living her life in Savannah. She did go on a couple of trips, but there was a long period of time where they were kind of preparing for trial and there was a lot of spotlight on her and people were, you know, very invested in this crime and who they thought did it. And a lot of people thought that she did it. Yeah. It wasn't until January of 1902, right, that her trial officially began. Yeah. And her trial was, it was really almost bizarre. Her attorneys were able to um, arrange things in such a way where, where she was sitting at the defense table, she was allowed to have her three sons with her. And so I think the defense table was probably pretty crowded because she also had four attorneys. And so all of them are kind of sitting at this table and Going back to my my friend that uh, does is the public defender, she told me that that's so unorthodox for the defendant to be able to sit there with her children. You know, it wouldn't even be considered safe, really. But they were able to do that, and um, she just sat there and listened to the testimony. She testified herself. 
there were, um, there were a lot of incidents at that trial that were almost like, I had to just keep checking different sources to see if they were true, but they all agreed on, on the basic things about it. Um, the prosecutor had a meltdown during, during the trial and Addie, Addie cried a little bit on the stand. Stewart didn't testify. That was, that was kind of an unusual thing too. What did prosecutors say happened to Frank? And what did they believe Addie's motive was in murdering him? They thought that Addie's motive was that she wanted to be with Stuart. They thought that they were having this this really salacious affair and that um, Addie and Stuart had basically conspired against Frank and they had come up with this plot and maybe Addie fired and maybe, maybe it was Stuart, but one of them did it and they had been working on it together. And they had kind of lured him back to the house to do this. And as proof, they used, uh, you know, there was one incident where Frank, before he had gone to rehab, had been out drinking and his sister and uh, brother-in-law were staying with the family. And so they didn't, he didn't come home for dinner and Addie realized, oh, he's probably out drinking. And she waited until kind of late at night to go out looking for him. She was hoping he would come back because she didn't want his sister to know, you know, how badly things were going at home. And so she went out around 11 and she went looking for him, but she took her son, her oldest son with her and they were walking to town and they encountered Stuart on the road. And she was talking with him for quite a, quite a while about what was happening. And he offered to help her and go find Frank at one of these establishments. But a lot of people happened to see them together and um, had seen them together walking at other times too. And this was used as proof of this affair that they were having and um, that Addie and Stuart just wanted Frank out of the way. And so they had arranged to kill him and that was the whole story. But without having Stuart there to testify, that was a little unusual. They were mostly relying on other witnesses uh, that had just kind of seen them together. And it was, it was very embarrassing. I think that was the only time that Eddie really cried was when they were accusing her of this stuff um, with Stuart and with other men. And that's what they said her motive was in, in trying to kill him. And the defense argued, basically, that Frank had a lot of business enemies and any one of them could have done this. Mm-hmm. And Goldie Whitehead's name didn't really come up, but... Interestingly, they tried to get, they subpoenaed uh, Bessie, the maid who had told all these stories, because that would have greatly bolstered their case. But Bessie didn't want to come to to the um, hearing. And they actually had to send out police to go get her. She came a day late and had basically retracted all of her testimony around what Addie had, um, you know, her habits as far as having men over and having men in her room and, and things like that. She just basically retracted everything negative that she had said. I think the damage had been done to Addie's reputation, but in terms of the case, that really, you know, hurt the case that one of their star witnesses was now recanting most of what she had said. What about blood evidence? There wasn't a lot of blood evidence there. Um, he had, there were a few spots of blood in the hallway, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't a terribly bloody crime scene. 
um, that it had just been the one bullet and um, it hadn't had an exit wound. So assuming that she was telling the truth and his last words were, has it come to this? What do you think that meant? I think that Frank came into the house, into his dark house, and maybe into his dark bedroom, and saw someone there that he knew that didn't belong there. And I think that's, I tried a lot to think about, if I put myself in Frank's shoes and I think, okay, well, my wife is at this Christmas pageant. And then my sons come in and say, no, she wasn't there. And then I'm, okay, she's at home. Why did he get so mad? Why did he get so upset when his sons told him that? And then he rushed home. And when he got home, that's what he said. I do think that's what he said. I don't think that the second story was true. I think the first story was true. It was very specific. And it seemed like the kind of thing that would maybe burn into her mind. And I think he saw somebody there that he knew and knowing how jealous he was that that's sort of the type of thing that I think he would say to somebody that he knew in his bedroom. I think that there's a lot to say though, about like Frank's demeanor, like when he found out that his wife hadn't been at church, I think that there's something there because Addie had, allegedly told him she she had called the store and Mrs. Carrot overheard her say, I'll meet you at the store. And I didn't go to church because I left my brooch. So why was he surprised? Very true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the verdict was not guilty. How did the press and the local population feel about the outcome? It's funny when you look at the headlines and I've included them in my book, it'll be like uh, not guilty in big letters. And then in smaller font, it says, so the jury says, <laughs> you know, so there was clearly some, some disagreement and some doubt about how much she had been involved. I don't, I think that Bessie's testimony, especially, and even George's testimony that she said she was going to church with this woman down the street, I think it called into question her character. You know, people were like, well, she's lying or she's doing these things behind her husband's back. And that part was not going to be able to be fixed, I don't think, unless there was something that could, you know, clear her reputation entirely. And I mean, I hope that the jury was like, yeah, she's not guilty, of course, but it, I don't think that her reputation recovered. And to a lot of people, they thought, well, if she would do those things, what would stop her from killing her husband? And there was a lot of speculation about that. So when she was, when she was acquitted, I think she was out of trouble legally. And it's funny because how vulnerable she seemed during her trial was not the case when she went to Stewart's trial. So they tried Stewart for the same motive, you know, the same crime, the same motive that he wanted to be with Addie and he had killed Frank because of this. But when Addie had to testify at his trial, she was, she was pretty different. You know, her, um, like the vulnerability was gone that, um, like the terror, I think of being declared guilty, all of that's sincere, you know, like, of course she was scared that maybe she would be hanged for the murder of her husband. Like, I could see why she would be very on edge when she was at her trial. But when she came to Stewart's trial, 
they would kind of confront her with these rumors. And she was much more um, independent and much more pushing back on things. You know, they said, um, so-and-so said this about you. And she's like, that didn't happen. And it had better not happen. You know, she was a lot more uh, feisty. That was a pretty silly trial, right? Uh, Stuart Fife's trial. Yeah, even the motive. It was like, well, you're having this affair with Addie, and it was. It seems very unlikely that that was happening. And I think Stuart had a lot of other things that he was interested in. I I just don't think that he was involved. And um, you're right. It was a really silly trial because they were pulling in these people who who didn't really know anything about it. The only the only thing that was kind of notable was about the gun. So Stuart had a gun like the murder weapon that had been stolen in July of that year. So this happened in December, of course, but um, he had something that, that was very similar and it was stolen in Chicago. And um, he hadn't reported it stolen until about 10 days after the murder. And um, he also admitted that he had borrowed a gun from the guy who who sold guns in the town. He was a jeweler, but he also sold guns. And um, he also admitted that he had borrowed a gun for a few days in December, but he had returned it before the murder. And I think there were some questions about that because it all just sounded kind of suspicious, but they didn't have a strong case against him at all. And um, they were forced to, to acquit him as well. And when they did, the DA said, you know, I'm, I'm never going to try another case related to Frank Richardson's murder again. I'm done. So the case was from that moment, it was going to be permanently unsolved. So nobody was ever held accountable for it. I think they managed to air a lot of dirty laundry and create a lot of suspicion where these three people were involved, Goldie, Stewart, and Addie, they didn't really give the public a conclusion. And people were pretty, whether they believed it was Stewart or Addie or maybe somebody else, they were pretty firmly attached to their theories. Yeah. Did Addie stick around in Savannah after her acquittal? No, she went, um, her father had moved from Texas to New Mexico and she went there and he died shortly afterwards. I think he died in 1902. And um, from there she went to Texas and then she came to Los Angeles and spent the rest of her life here in, in, well, not here, but (laughs) she spent the rest of her life in Los Angeles. And um, she had been, um, she didn't have any other troubles at all in terms of legal troubles. Nothing ever came up from this again. And people kind of scattered. Everybody that had anything to do with this murder or had ever been questioned or like a main figure in the murder quickly left town and they never came back. And so Frank's murder, there was, there was a lot of people who did not like Frank because of maybe some of his behaviors and some of the things that they knew about him. And so they were kind of content to leave it like that, but they still had their conclusions. And um, interestingly, Addie, Addie um, lived in California, I think, till her death. And she was in her 60s or so, and she died on Independence Day. But even then, it was, uh, I think there still always has been some some suspicion attached to her memory. And in a lot of ways, you feel like she was, 
She was in a really hard circumstance and she wasn't the type of person who would ask for pity. But if people had known, I think, more about what she was enduring, maybe they would have felt more generous toward her. Right. You are working on something new right now, right? And you certainly don't have to get into the details too much. But but it sounds exciting. You're always working on a new book. <laughs> I'm so excited about this one. It's it's it takes place in Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, from 1906 to 1909, and it's so funny. Like I looked high and low for this story that that we've been talking about. Has it come to this? And finally found it. But this story that I'm working on right now just dropped into my lap, and it's it's been so fascinating to me. Um, it was mental a story about one person, but it, it kind of quickly expanded. It was like one of those things where you pull the thread and everything unravels and wow, there was so much to it. But I've, I've been so excited about it because it's, it's got, it's more about like kind of the concept of guilt because there are people who are clearly guilty. There are people who are clearly not guilty. And then there are people who are guilty, but it's like, are they responsible for what they did? You know, there was like some mental illness and, and other things. So it's, it's such a wonderful story and I'm really excited about it. I don't have a, I don't have an actual title for it yet, but I'm hoping that um, probably by the end of the year, I'll finish it and, and get it ready to go. Very cool. Yeah. Well, well, I certainly hope that you come back to talk about that here. Oh, thank you. I would love to. So for people who want to contact you, learn more about you and your books, where should we send them? Oh, go to my website. It's called oldspirituals.com. And I actually have discussion pages for each of my books. So um, The Poison Glass, Cold Heart, Has It Come to This? And I have like a little warning at the top for people who haven't read the books that there might be some spoilers, but we created it so that people would have a place to go and, and talk about what they think happened, specifically with um, Cold Heart and Has It Come to This? Because they ended up being unsolved mysteries and people have strong theories, you know, based on reviewing all of the evidence. And it's funny too, because a lot of times people bring up things that I just didn't think of when I wrote the book and um, a lot of really good discussions about, you know, just things that people pick up on and, and their thought processes around it. So I love to read that and um, interact with people. And um, I do contests and things like that too, like giveaways. So um, I really hope people will stop by. I would love that. And you are a career coach as well. Yeah, I have um, my career coaching business that I co-founded. It's called Pivot Discovery. And um, I work with people to find what they're really, what their aptitude is and what they really would like to do, what matches their values and their strengths and help them get to where that they want to be, you know, and, and find the work that really suits them. And I really love doing that as well. Well, this has been great. Thank you for coming back. Thank you so much, Eric. I really enjoyed talking with you today. Again, I have been speaking to Kimberly Tilly. Her new book is called Has It Come to This? The Mysterious Unsolved Murder of Frank Richardson. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis and have a safe tomorrow.